0: Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is the Apple developer and author of the Eclectic Light Company, Howard Oakley, Doctor Howard
1: Oakley, I should say. Thank you, John. It's a delight to be here.
0: Doctor Oakley is a longtime technologist uh, and recently Apple developer, and uh, is the author of the Eclectic Light. I got to get that right. Eclectic Light Company. Uh, blog and developer uh, of some fine uh, Mac apps, especially those that with a security focus. And um, I've been so impressed with uh, his uh, writings and his uh, software. By, by the way, Dave Hamilton says, hi, he loves your software, he's been using it. So he's our publisher and uh, he said, uh, wave to Howard and thank him for the good work.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: So the purpose of Background Mode is to kind of introduce uh, the listeners to the guest and history and, and their background. Tell me about your early years as a youth and the influences and aspirations. We know what you're doing today, but how did you get there and how did you get started? and Who turned you on and what, were, what was driving you when you were young?
1: It's a very long and um, fairly tortuous course because, of course, when I was a youth in my teens, um, computers were huge things that went into insurance companies in big buildings. I'm I'm thinking back in the the late 60s, um, early 70s. So um, my exposure at school, for example, to computation um, were act, was actually hand-cranked mechanical calculators, where to do multiplication, you cranked the crank round one time. Oh, you mean like
0: Frieden calculators? Sorry? For, I, I used a calculator called Frieden. It was a big box, big gray box, looked like a typewriter. It had lots of buttons, and you would um, press the buttons, and then you pull the crank, and it would compute Frieden.
1: similar a sort of idea, but I think ours were even more primitive. Um, And um, I I remember when I was at school, one of my friends, his dad was in an electronics company and they produced the first programmable calculator in the UK, which was rather bigger than the keyboard on my Mac. Um, Mains powered um, and it it had a very, very primitive RPN type um, um, programmability. So when I was at school... I was mathematically strongly inclined, but at the age of 12, I decided that I wanted to be a doctor. Oh, interesting. A a medical practitioner. Well, even that was a tortuous path because originally I wanted to be a poet, um, and thankfully, my father had gone to school with um, a former poet laureate um, here in the UK, a guy called Ted Hughes. Um, and Ted Hughes wrote to my dad and said, no, no, don't let him be a poet. You know, do anything else. Medicine's a really good thing. <laughs> um, quoting people like Somerset Maugham, who who were doctors and went on to successful careers in writing. So anyway, at the age of 12, I was going to be a doctor and went through. And when I came to um, what we sat then in the UK at the age of 15, 16, I, I sat them a year younger at 15. And you then went on to specialist subjects at school, which sort of halfway to high school in the States. Um, And to do medicine, I had to do physics, chemistry, and biology. Um, Had to do those because if I didn't, I had to do another year before I could start my medical training at university. And I didn't want to do those. I wanted to do maths, further maths, botany and zoology um really occurred even then so um they they compromised and i did physics chemistry botany and zoology but then i was allowed to keep my maths going so into university um, and I, I managed to get myself a scholarship to oxford to do my first degree oh, nice. um, and in the course of that at the end of the first year um i thought hmm this is all very good, but I could do with a little bit of a change, a bit of excitement. And I stumbled across a pamphlet listing travelling scholarships. Now, of course, these were almost all for postgraduates, not undergraduates. Um, but I found two um, that were suitable, that were open to undergraduates. Um, One would have taken me to Holland, where there was an interesting exercise laboratory that I could have worked in, Um, and the other would have taken me to Denmark. And I was already quite interested in the physiology and medicine of exercise at that stage, applied for the traveling scholarship, got it, and spent a year in Copenhagen um, working as an undergraduate, teaching other undergraduates who were two, three, four years older than me, um, and doing my first bit of real research, and it was real leading edge research. Um, we were um, teasing individual fibres from muscle biopsies and doing um, leading edge enzyme assays on them, um, and you know, being the most junior guy in the lab. I did all the practical stuff, which was wonderful, I, I, superb, yeah. But I discovered in that year that almost no one else, all these professors and everyone else, almost no one else in life sciences was numerate. Um, so uh, because I'm you
0: mathematically I, I, astute.
1: I, yeah. Um, and my statistics was better than theirs. And many of them had been working in research and publishing statistic full papers for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and at that stage, we were just on the dawn of computing becoming accessible. The University of Copenhagen had a computing center, and um, this place. Um, had um, an Olivetti, it was called a, a a table computer, which was not a computer you put on a table. It was complete table, the whole lot built in, which was basically a programmable calculator that did something that wasn't quite basic, but it was sort of getting towards there. And I needed to run some simulations, and the easiest way for me to do these was iteratively on this Olivetti system so I worked out how to program it and had it doing um, it was simulating um, the evaporation of water from these very small biopsy samples that we took to work out corrections that you could make for their mass um, which was uh, methodologically quite useful Um, I published a paper on it afterwards those were heavy days
0: as young scientists. Uh, we were introduced to computers of some form.
1: Oh, it was, punch it, cards
0: it, or desktop calculators and Frieden's and Olivettis and Wangs. Yeah, I cut my I, teeth I, on some Wang desktop computers, similar to the, what you were talking about. And yeah. all of a sudden, it seemed like as a young scientist, you know, you, you were working with pencil and paper a lot. Well, all of a sudden you had these computational resources available to you and it was amazing and
1: it was heady. Yep. Well, to, to skip ahead a bit, I came back from Denmark, um, finished off my first degree in Oxford. Um, I then went on because the, the way the system worked then um, to do your um, actual clinical training, you normally went off to a different medical school. And I chose to go to Cardiff Um, which was a a superb choice and in Cardiff and no sooner I got into the med school there and started seeing patients on wards and all this sort of stuff than I came across a course in statistics which gave me computer time Mm. so uh,
0: you were seduced at
1: that point (laughs) I I started doing (laughs) overnight batch processing yeah And um, we were programming a statistics package again. um, And I got my first core dump, which was brought to me on a trolley. (laughs) Uh, It must have been about three foot thick of uh, paper printout. I was bitten. I did a little bit of interactive stuff, um, over the line to the Bristol University Computing Centre, um, which was a sort of interactive um, running Fortran routines, and I—I I mean, this—this this was it. This was the confluence of all, all my interests. That's so how I got my be- start. Was on Fortran. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So um, we had to step ahead of here a little bit. Mm. Um. Did you, did you get a medical degree? Is that why you're a doctor? Or did you get a PhD in something?
1: Uh, I, I, I got a medical degree. I went through, I did um, a year's work in the National Health Service. My first six months going in at the deep end was in brain surgery, believe, believe it or not, in neurosurgery. Um, I then did six months in geriatrics. And by this stage, I decided that I wanted to do medical research. So I then looked around at what was the best way of doing that and discovered the armed forces, offered good careers in research, and I got myself um, a place in the Navy um, who then paid me through my medical training, which was a huge help. Um, I then did, as I say, a year's actual practice in NHS hospitals and then joined the Navy proper. Um, and... As an the, officer?
0: As what we, in the U.S., we, we have enlisted and we have officers.
1: Uh, no, no, I joined as a doctor.
0: So, oh, But doctors my, usually have an officer rank of some kind.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I joined initially as a surgeon sub-lieutenant. Ah, um, yes. all, all, all naval doctors are referred to as surgeons. I then got promoted to surgeon-lieutenant. And... In that process of actually going from the civilian world into the Navy, um, I had an appointment with the appointer, who was the man who decided what job I was going to do. And he started off by saying to me that um, he needed so many volunteers for the raw marines and so many volunteers for submarines Now, my granddad had died in a submarine in 1942 in the Second World War, um, but the prospect of spending three months in a nuclear boat did not entertain me. (laughs) Um, But I was very, I mean, I was climbing, caving. I was doing a lot of outdoor activities at that stage. So I said, listen, I'd love to serve with the Royal Marines. So, of course, when I then came into the Navy proper, they said, ah, you need to do the Royal Marines Green Beret course, which I duly went off, got my Green Beret. And I was then serving with the Royal Marines, um, which was a fascinating period, two and two and a bit years, because it took in the Falklands conflict. So I served ashore down in the Falklands, supporting the Royal Marines. I had two skiing holidays um, doing Norway deployments during the winter. Supporting the NATO deployments to Norway. Um, and in the course of those things, I developed an interest in environmental medicine, particularly the cold, um, which I think was probably going to be fairly obvious. <laughs> and because of that, I then got invited to go on an, an Antarctic expedition, oh, which cool. I did...
0: McMurdo or the British station?
1: Uh, no, this was an expedition. So we overwintered in tents, none of these soft things of huts. Oh, interesting. Um, so I had a wonderful nine months or so ashore down there. But in, in the <laughs> that before we left the UK, I became the equipment officer for the expedition. I was procuring all sorts of odd bits and pieces. And one of the things I've recognized, because all expeditions have to have a scientific research content. I thought, we're going to need a computer. And this was just at the time of the IBM PC. So I contacted someone at IBM, and Matt struck good, and they made a commitment to provide the expedition with a free IBM PC when we returned. Um, when we were down in the Antarctic, I did a couple of publicity shots for them, which they duly used afterwards. So I contacted IBM and said, "Now about this free IBM PC." They said, "What free? This is IBM you, you're <laughs> t- PC." And because they'd already by this stage used the publicity shots, albeit in um, their in-house um, literature. They, they realized they couldn't get out of this without embarrassment. So they said it was just, oh, let's give this guy a PC um, and shut him up and let him go away and, and we'll have a quiet life. So, and I still got the IBM PC XT. That then took me on to PC Numerics. And I realized, of course, that the 8087 87 Maths coprocessor was pretty powerful, very interesting, and not many people seem to know much about it. I came across a firm um, in the States, which is still going, I believe, called Microway, who were numeric specialists, and they had a recently established European subsidiary, um, Microway Europe Limited, contacted them um, wanting to get a load of software to support 8087 compilers with 8087 support and stuff. And they were just starting to move into the transputer. What is a
0: transputer? Uh, I've heard the term before, but I don't remember exactly what it is.
1: um, This is is one of the British um, disastrous failures that should have been glorious success. Um, This was back in the mid 80s. Um, A firm was set up um, called InMOS to develop massively parallel um, computers using processors which were designed to be tightly integrated parallel processors.
0: Oh, we do that today with supercomputers, but this was just the beginning.
1: This, w- this was very much the beginning, and they developed um, a particular chip called the T800, um, which had floating-point support, um, was designed to work very, very closely um, with a whole array of these. And we used to go to trade demos and things. And in those days, everything was about Mandelbrot sets. Do you remember the Mandelbrot? Mm -hmm. Of course. Glorious. And we used to go along with a box that went onto a PC, and you'd run the Mandelbrot set on one transputer, and you'd see the squares come up one at a time over a period of several minutes. This is a long time ago, remember? And then you'd um, run it in parallel on your 24 transputers, and it appeared almost immediately, almost 24 times the speed. Um, I then sort of got involved with this, and in 1987, Commodore decided they wanted to build a transputer add-in board for the Amiga. So um I got a I was at work um working for the Navy by this stage I was running the Navy's survival medical research and it was a glorious day I got a phone call from a guy who turned out to be I don't remember who was actually the CEO of Commodore at the time but he was very very high up and he said he'd like to come and chat with me um and I said okay fine well you know when when would you like so he said well I'm in Germany at the moment, but I can be with you this evening. And I thought, this sounds important. Uh, Anyway, he flew over. um, We talked, and Commodore wanted me to develop the software support for these transputer um, add-in boards. The seduction Uh, is now in full progress. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, come the autumn, um, a team from Commodore in Germany flew over, provided me with a handcrafted Amiga, um, which worked properly in all respects. Um, and I started work on this, um, had a wonderful experience. C- Commodore had um, a developer mom at the time who was absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, to, to look after developers, and make make sure we were all... We all felt loved and cared for. And the Amiga was an amazing system. Um, But then everything went cold with Commodore. And they they obviously drifted off into something else. And and they started to have financial woes. And um, things were not going too well. And by 1989, um, that side was quieting down. We were still transmuting and we were still sort of pushing things on um but um then a couple of friends who'd been involved with the supply of my original IBM PC um they ran the IBM and Apple dealership on on the Isle of Wight where I live um contacted me because they were in an embarrassing position um they had another company that had developed huge format laser cutters and were trying to sell these to sailmakers and they had a guy who was supposedly developing um, Mac software to drive this um, cutter, laser cutter. And in a couple of months, they would, had a, a long-booked demonstration of their system with one of the big UK sailmakers. And this guy had basically done nothing. So they came to me and said, could I possibly help? So I said, well, I've never used a Mac, let alone programmed one. Um, They said, don't worry. There's a guy who lives here called Patrick Buckland, um, who's the guy who wrote Crystal Quest. Remember Crystal Quest on the Mac? Vaguely. Vaguely. Oh, I was addicted to Crystal Quest, but that came later. Um, Anyway, Patrick was... One of the very best of the classic Mac developers. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so I was provided with a Mac SE. Um, I was given MPW, Macintosh Programmers Workshop, and said, right, in two months' time, we expect to see this working. And I actually sort of did it. I mean, we did have something that sort of worked, Um And that then grew, and from 1989 onwards, I became Mac only.
0: Okay, so we're going to have to bring the first segment to a close. We're right on time here with your final emergence as a Mac developer. I want to get to that in segment two of the show. Folks, we have to take a short commercial break, and we'll be back with uh, Dr. Howard Oakley to hear more about his uh, life as an Apple developer. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away you'll be able to deploy maintain your infrastructure simply and cost effectively plus linode's tools make it easy to provision secure monitor and back up your cloud to learn more visit linode.com bgm that's l-i-n-o-d-e dot com forward slash bgm all new customers receive a 20 dollars credit thanks linode for being our sponsor We're back. I'm chatting with Dr. Haru Oakley of the Eclectic Light Company. So, tell me about your development and evolution as a Mac developer.
1: Um, I loved it. Um, Classic Mac was—it was a very small family, particularly in the UK. Um, I suppose there could have only been a few dozen Mac developers in the UK in those days, Um, and we used to have meetings. Um, at Apple UK, um, which was near Heathrow Airport, London Airport. Um, We were well looked after. We had um, an electronic system to communicate with Apple. Um, When System 7 was coming out, um, it produced TrueType fonts. And I recognized that TrueType fonts would be a wonderful way of being able to cut very large letters and numbers using these laser cutters. Um, so I contacted Apple developer support. They put me in touch with one of the TrueType engineering team, and he provided me with sample code and we worked together. And I basically cha- cha- I broke into TrueType fonts and took out the for- the outline of the glyphs, um, and to turn those into the cutter instructions um, oh, that would interesting. drive the cutter. And we Creative. had who who were cutting um, these huge letters and numbers. And of course, they went on to sales. Um, the company that was developing the laser cutters um, was expanding quite rapidly, and and they went into plasma jet as well. Um, it was it was wonderful, really exciting, but that company unfortunately got a bit overextended financially, and then they went bankrupt, owing me quite a lot of money, and. Uh, by this stage, thankfully, um, I was also doing freelance journalism um, about the same time as I was starting to develop. I, I started to write occasional articles for, for magazines. And with Macs, very, very few people at that time knew anything about the in, internals and things. So I, I started writing for Mac User magazine, the original British Mac User, the American Mac User was a quite separate publication. Um, This one was was published by Felix Dennis, Um, and um, gradually, as as the the problems with the laser cutter side um, got bigger, um, we I did a project um, with a firm that um, made um, paragliders. Um, and developed a paraglider design and manufacturing complete CAD CAM system for the Mac, um, which is really very, very exciting. Because at that stage, no one really understood the form that paragliders adopt um, in in the air. So you know, we did all sorts of sophisticated stuff with them. Um, but this, this wasn't really... Um, providing the financial return. So the freelance journalism with MacUser became a much more regular um, thing. All this time, of course, I was doing a day job and quite a demanding day job too. So there'd be times when I'd come home from work in the evening, um, work through the night, go into work the following day. And then after about 36 hours of working continuously, I'd finally go to sleep. So it was a hectic time. It was, it was enormous fun. Very, very good. Um, at
0: what point did you branch off and become an independent developer? Was that, is that relatively recently or was that early on?
1: Well, it depends. You see, I don't believe any developer is really independent because you, you're always dependent on um, how you're selling your product. Now, at the moment with the App Store, you're not independent because you're dependent on Apple. If you're selling through the app store, if you're selling truly independently, um, then you you have a hell of a job. And I don't think <clears throat> one can really cope with all that with, um, you know, they're, they're going to have to have some support from other people um, somewhere along that, li- that line. So, I mean, when, when I was developing the laserjet, uh, the la- laser cutting software. Um I was independent in the sense that if I wanted to, I could just turn around and say, right, I'm out. That's it. There was no contract. Um, it was all agreements between friends. And, I mean, ultimately, they just went broke and that was it. Um, I did quite a lot of support with the sailmakers. makers. I had, had a very good friend in Copenhagen again. Um, who um, was diamond sailmakers in Copenhagen. Um, And we went, I used to go over from time to time to maintain his max and things like this. Um, Had uh, Norton Utilities wipe a disc for me about eight hours before I was due to fly back to the UK and had to manually recover it before I left. All sorts of fun and games it was it was very very good and you you, you learned really very quickly or or you died mm. when did the um, eclectic light company get founded well what what happened then as we went through into mac os ten, I continued developing and um, the first thing I developed with mac OS ten was um a little completely free thing called HFS Packs, which was a port of Packs, the command tool, um, which supported resource forks. Um, and that was then used in a commercial product um, for backup. Um, I then, because Apple had gone Objective-C, I went a bit cold. I, I was Apple scripting. I did some Fortran. Um, I used um Mac, Common, Lisp, um, various other languages at the time, um, but really didn't do any sort of serious development um, until I came up to retirement. Um, I told my employees, the Royal Navy, I was going to retire five years before I retired. I retired at 60, which is just over five years ago. Um, So the day job was gone. And I was looking forward to all the things I was going to do. And then the January after I had retired in the summer, MacUser folded, stopped publication, and that was it. So I was then left with a situation where I had all the stuff that I'd written for MacUser, um, which I still owned the copyright to once it had once it was more than six months old. Um, and it was just sat there on my Mac doing nothing. And I thought, I can't do this. So I decided to set up a blog, which was is the Eclectic Light Company, and republish all the stuff that I published um, for MacUser once it had it, um, gone out of its six-month um, term that MacUser had over it. And it sort of grew from there. And I started um, uh, pushing out some Apple scripts um apps and about 2016 I suppose um, things started to get more serious and and the things that precipitated that were um, Sierra with a unified log and a horrible pale shadow of its former self um, in console which made log browsing almost impossible mm, I've heard that and then, in the um, late 2016, Apple shipped a load of MacBook Pros that had SIP turned off, and the only way of telling that was by going to the command line. And of course, a lot of users, very uh, very system very integrity op- production. Yep, yeah. um, a lot of a lot of users just would not go to the co- command line. They won't now, um, and. Um, I, I then was driven to develop two apps. Um, one has become LockRattler, um, which started off as, a, a, as an easy interface um, to tell where the SIP was turned on or off and has just sort of grown. And the other... Um, I originally wrote a thing in AppleScript called LogLogger, which basically just took a specified chunk of log and wrote it out to a text file. And then I realized that writing out to a text file was stupid, and actually I wanted a proper app. So I then started to develop um, Consolation, which is my um, previous log browser. You come up with the greatest names for these apps. I love it. (laughs) I spend lots of time trying to think of devious ones Um, and um, some people criticize me because of some of them as well because they're great um, but anyway so um, these things just sort of grew now at this stage I had decided that the Eclectic Light Company was going to be a completely free blog um, and inevitably, these tools were going to be completely free. And I was writing them largely because I wanted them. I mean, I wanted to be able to access the blog. Um, By this stage, I was writing the Genius Tips section for Mac format syndicated into Mac Life. Um, And it was very important to me to be able to say to someone who wrote, sent me in a question, well, just have a look in your log. Well, of course, if I said to them, just open console, most of them would run away right, screaming. Right, So it, it, these tools grew. And then people started to ask me, well, um, couldn't you do this? And the classic example with that, I suppose... Um, was some of the um, privacy-related tools, for example, because um, I think it was Patrick Wardle, the security expert, um, was one of those who who discovered that the quick-look cache was completely unprotected. And you could happily go in and browse someone's quick-look cache and see images that they'd been looking at. Um, so, it would be really nice to have a, a tool, which a utility, which flushed the quick look cache, um, so that those that all those images weren't there anymore.
0: This is what's so glorious about your software is you dig into the deep internals, exposing security issues, giving people tools, tools that we never thought we needed before. But then when we go, yeah, this is I never knew about this. This is neat.
1: Um, Well, a lot of it happens on the blog. It's because people read the blog. They say, well, could you do
0: this?
1: (laughs) And sometimes the answer is no, sorry. Um, But I I usually try to help people. And, you know, sometimes I I suspect that only two or three people on the planet use a particular tool that someone has asked for. But ultimately, I use them as well. Tell me about Silent Night with a K. Silent Night. Well... Um, Lock Rattler is great, but Lock Rattler needs a lot of manual support. I mean, if you discover um, your FE firmware version in Lock Rattler, you then have to go off and look at a page on my blog to see whether that is the current one for your version of macOS. So the first thing I thought was, let's make something that actually checks to see whether these things are right. And the same with the security data file updates. Um, Yes, if you keep reading the blog, you'll know that they've just pushed out a particular data file and that you're up to date, like XProtect 1.53 came out last night. Um, But actually, what people want to be able to do is they want to have something tell them
0: whether they're up to date. I think you're the only person on the planet who is helping people keep up to date on what's happening with XProtect.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to keep up to date with it. I don't want my Mac sat here. I I saw it before, where you'd catch up with one of these security updates two, three days later. Now, okay, in the big scheme of things, I suppose very few people actually had problems because of that. But Security updates are important, Yes, um, and Apple doesn't even tell you when it pushes them. So I, I just felt, you know, this is something that the, um, the aware, conscious, careful user could do with knowing about. So the, the original objective um, in developing what became um, Silent Night was to automatically check the FE firmware versions. But of course, Apple doesn't tell anyone the correct FE firmware version for any given version, any given model of Mac or any given release of Mac OS. So the first thing I was doing on the blog anyway was um, keeping an updated list of FE firmware versions by model. So I I then had a problem because I, I blog on WordPress, in fact, one of the automatic hosted WordPress blogs, which I'm very happy with, and and it works beautifully. But you can't put, um, for example, an XML file onto it, Um, not unless you start paying um, quite high prices for a fully commercial blog. And I didn't want to do that. Um, Someone then said, well, why don't you do it on GitHub, Um, which is what I now do. So, I've got a little bit on GitHub, And on there is an XML file that contains all the current versions um, of the security data files. Um, There's XML files for each model group, like iMac, MacBook Pro, um, with all the FE firmware versions. And I maintain those. And when you run Silent Night, all it does is it hooks up to my GitHub, pulls down the right files checks the version numbers against the ones it finds on your mac and tells you whether or not they're up to date
0: how do you make it up to date if it isn't
1: well it's got a a little button on it that says download updates um it actually asks whether there are updates available um so like Last night, I didn't know Apple was going to release um, the X-Protect update um, at, when it did. All I do is over the course of the day, suppose four, five, six times, I run Silent Night. It tells me if there are updates waiting. Sometimes they're not security updates. It picks up, for example, um, the preview version of Safari, Um but when it picks up um, a security update, I immediately install it, p- um, change the version numbers on my GitHub. And then that means every other Silent Night user who connects after that has been updated, um, then gets the update. They're told what, that what's happened. I post um, and everyone is happy, I think.
0: I think everyone is very happy with your work. I've been impressed. That I've been referencing your articles in my Friday column called Particle Debris, and I've been reading about what you're doing with uh, the deep internals of macOS and the things that nobody else is paying attention to. It's just awesome. I want to thank you for all the work you've been doing and contributing to the Mac community and the software you've written. It's all very glorious, and I highly recommend your eclectic light company blog to every mac user and reader so i want to thank you for what you're doing i want to thank you for telling us your story uh glorious indeed as they say physicists and scientists make the best programmers and obviously this is true you're just a great example of it so um, i want to thank you again for joining me on the show and telling us your story this has been great
1: Thank you very much indeed, John. It's been a real delight, and it's a delight to actually know how many people out there are benefiting from ah, just a little bit of hacking about, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and I try to promote it as much as I can. So uh, good luck to you, and uh, carry on, sir, with great work. Thank you, John. Uh, If the listeners would like to contact you uh, with any questions, what's the best way to do
1: that? Through the blog, please. Okay. Uh, on um, my um, homepage on the blog, um, there's an email address, but it's it's much much better to comment on the blog. It's easier for me to respond to that.
0: Great, I will put this in the show notes, folks. You've been listening to the uh, author and developer of the Eclectic Light Company, Dr. Howard Oakley and John Marchalero on Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.